Thank you for downloading this sermon. We hope you've been blessed by this ministry. If you'd like to give back, please invest in the future of Clearnote Church through our capital campaign, Faithful Through All Generations. To make a donation, visit clearnotebloomington.com slash give. Good morning. Today, we will continue in our series on the parables of Jesus with, as I said in my prayer, the parable of the Good Samaritan. And there are essentially two parts to my sermon today, and I want to emphasize them now because you have to keep both parts in mind if you're going to make any sense of the entire sermon, okay? One part is that in our text today, there's a question that is asked of Jesus, You must keep the question fixed in your mind. And then Jesus answers the question. And so we're going to talk about both the question and the answer. And there are are going to be many words in this sermon, I assure you. I'll be talking for a while. But I want you, you to have your mind fixed on the question and the answer. If you walk away... Remembering what the question was and what the answer was, I will have, this will have been a success. Okay? So, what's the context here? Jesus is talking to a lawyer, and this is a religious lawyer, right? We have lawyers in our day, they deal with civil matters or uh, maybe business matters or something like that. But in, in Jesus' day, they had religious lawyers who looked into the, the religious law and, and thought very carefully about it and wrote about it. And so a lawyer comes up to Jesus and asks him a question, and Jesus answers him. So let us now read Scripture. This is uh, Luke chapter 10, verse, beginning with verse 25. And a lawyer stood up and put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How does it read to you? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But wishing to justify himself, he said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied and said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among robbers, and they stripped him and beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. And by chance a priest was going down on that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite also, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, who was on a journey, came upon him. And when he saw him, he felt compassion, and came to him and bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them. And he put him on his own beast, and brought him to an inn, and took care of him. On the next day he took out two denarii, and gave them to the innkeeper, and said, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, when I return I will repay you. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? And he said, the one who showed mercy toward him. Then Jesus said to him, go and do the same. 
Now, I'd like to tell you a story of my own, a parable, if you will. There was once a student at Indiana University. Now, this student was a very hard-working, diligent student, and so he studied morning, noon, and night. He spent hours in the library, and one day, uh, uh, his senior year, well, not one day, but in his last semester in his senior year, he was taking his capstone course, right? This is the course that his entire major was leading up to. And so uh, he had to pass it to graduate, naturally. And so he worked very, very hard, just as he had done for the three and a half years previously. And so then finally... The day came, the day of the exam. He walks into the room, and this, this particular student did not walk into the room with the breezy self-confidence of a student who had not prepared but was arrogant, right, and just sort of ambled, shambles into the room. But no, this student knew that this was going to be a very difficult test, but he also knew that he had prepared, and so he was ready. And so he sat down at his desk, picked up his pencil, and uh, looked down at his test to begin. And then immediately, it happened. He slammed. It was like he slammed into a brick wall. All of a sudden, he realized that he did not recognize anything on the test, on the exam. And so immediately, he started to go through the five stages of grief. Right? (laughs) First, he denied it. He frantically searched through the test to find Something that was familiar, just remotely familiar to him about the test. And he didn't find it. And so next, he was angry. That professor, he is out to get me. He was angry at the professor. The professor must have tricked him. And then, he started into the bargaining phase. Maybe if I ask the professor a question, you know, what if, what if I get a deal with him. I can retake the exam a little later or something like that. He looked up at the professor and realized immediately that wasn't going to happen. So he slumped back in his chair, depressed. Finally came the resignation. He knew that there was nothing left to do, and so he simply turned in his blank exam and walked out of the room. He wasn't going to graduate. He wasn't going to pass the class. It was all over for him. Now, every culture is religious at its very core because every culture attempts to answer the most basic questions we have about our lives. Why are we here? What is the point of my life? What is the meaning in all of this stuff that we do? And my reason for telling you the story that I did this morning is because I think that we Americans are just like that student sitting there at his desk staring at an exam after studying the wrong material. In America, we think that the point of life is to have lots of money, or maybe children that obey, or maybe we think the point of life is to experience things, have amazing experiences, travel the world, or maybe it's to save the world from the AIDS epidemic. Whatever it is, the point of life for us Americans, has to do with this world 
here and now. The lawyer in Jesus' parable said to him, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And as I prepared to preach on the parable of the Good Samaritan, I realized that if we had had, if we had, had the opportunity to ask Jesus one question, we most certainly would not have asked what the lawyer did. We might have said, what must I do to get an MBA? Or what must I do to lose 10 pounds? Or what must I do to get a little peace and quiet? What must I do to get the perfect job? What must I do to be free from sickness? What must I do to get a man to marry me? What must I do to have a solid retirement plan? What must I do to make sure that my my children will be well off and be able to afford a college education and have a nice life? What must I do to maximize my tax benefit? What must I do to get elected? If we could have asked Jesus one question and we were going to ask something that we really cared about and didn't simply put on airs, this is the kind of question I'm convinced we would have asked. And there is a pattern, of course, to these questions, and they reveal an infinite gulf between what we think is important today and what, where this lawyer, uh, speaking to Jesus, was coming from 2,000 years ago. Our questions have everything to do with this world and nothing to do with the world to come. Our questions have everything to do with us and very little to do with God. Now, if you're a student right now, maybe at Indiana University, uh, showing up at an exam completely unprepared is probably one of your worst nightmares. I, I know that when I was a student at Indiana University, I did, in fact, spend many hours in the library. There was a time that I... Uh, wanted to become a doctor, so I was on the pre-med track, and I spent many hours in Jordan Hall, the biology building. If you've ever been there, you know that the library descends into this little cave kind of area. It just, it's very strange because it really does just keep going down. And I spent many hours there because it was very, very quiet. Um, and yet, I was happy to do that because one thought of the exams that I would have to sit down and take gave me motivation, right? It was motivation enough for me to sit in front of the books and work hard to study the material. And as students, you know, you're never so careless as to study the wrong thing, right? Now, you know, maybe in middle school you did that once or twice. <laughs> Doug's laughing because he knows what, he's, what I'm talking about. <laughs> But by the time you get to college, you're actually paying good money for this education. You want to make sure that you're studying the right thing. And yet, we act just like the student in the parable that I told today. The lawyer in Jesus' story was miles ahead of us. He actually knew the right question to ask. He knew the burning question that had to be answered. What must I do to inherit eternal life? But not us. We don't even know what question to ask. And today, to even ask that particular question is to invite a certain amount of scorn and derision, right? If you go to Indiana University and you suggest the topic of conversation or maybe a debate, you know, let's have a debate about what must I do to inherit eternal life. You'll probably just be laughed at. We're so 
focused on this life and we're given over to the myths of our particular day and age that we've forgotten that we have each of us an eternal soul that will one day stand before God. And so, again, I bring you back to the, the topic of the, the parable of the Good Samaritan. And I want to simply say that nothing about Jesus' answer to that question, that is to say, nothing about the parable of the Good Samaritan can be understood apart from the question that he's being asked. Now, the parable of the Good Samaritan is, enter, is so familiar to us that it's even common, commonly known among non-Christians, right? Uh, even, if, even if you don't even, many non-Christians would not even know that it's from the Bible, necessarily, right? They would just know, they've like, yeah, I've heard the phrase, the Good Samaritan, and they have an idea of what that means, but, uh, but they don't even know where it's from. Well, that simply means that the, that the parable of the Good Samaritan is so very familiar to us that, uh, that we gloss over it, that we miss things because it's a well-worn path that we just, we just keep, it's like driving home from work. You know, sometimes I'm like at work and then I'm at home and I just don't even remember the, the drive in between, right? That's what the, good, the parable of the Good Samaritan is like. But I, I want us to be very careful not to miss the point today. We're going to go down this path, but I don't want us to just show up at the end and not realize what's going on. Pay very close attention. So let's look at how Jesus responds to the question from the lawyer. We read in Luke that the lawyer was putting Jesus to the test with his question. We know that the Jewish religious leaders at the time had no love for Jesus, and so there was likely a fair bit of malice in the question. Being a lawyer, this man was very careful and adept with words. He was waiting to see where he might catch Jesus in an especially bad or damning mistake. And so he asked Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus responds immediately, to the question by turning to the law. Is that in any, anyone's estimation here this morning, is that what we would do? If somebody walked up to, to us today as Christians asking us, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Would we even consider quoting a passage from Deuteronomy? We wouldn't do it. Right? We wouldn't do it. His immediate response is to point the man back to the law of Moses. And uh, the passage that Jesus points him back to is a very famous one. It's called the Shema Israel, which simply means, Hear, O Israel. It's the name uh, it's, it's the name for the passage, and it, the name simply comes from the passage itself, right? The first couple words in the passage. This particular passage, the Shema, is at the very center of the prayer services uh, of Jews, right? All, and this, devout Jews have been regularly reciting this prayer ever since it was given to them uh, by God through Moses, 
And it's the center of the prayer services every, that a devout Jew will pray every single morning and evening. It encapsulates the essence of religion that was handed down through Moses and the prophets to the people of Israel. And so I, I don't want you to miss the point that Jesus is telling the man, is saying to the man, uh, please go ahead and tell me what you said today in your prayers earlier in the morning. Uh, The lawyer knew exactly what Jesus was talking about, and so he immediately quotes the passage from Deuteronomy 6. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. Now, the lawyer had gotten up and asked the question because he thought he was asking a difficult question, right? And you have to understand the scene, what's going on. A lawyer stands in front of Jesus and asks a question because he's trying to stump Jesus, and Jesus says, well, what did you say in your prayers this morning? It's like, it's like asking a little child, uh, you know, an obvious question, a question that has an obvious answer. And so you can kind of imagine uh, the, uh, the lawyer going, okay, Jesus, yeah, well, I'll go ahead and recite my prayers to you. We've all done this already once today, but here you go. And... Um, you can kind of see the, the lawyer rolling his eyes a little bit at Jesus. And so immediately, the lawyer uh, is a little trapped, right? He's, he's been answered by Jesus, and, um, <clears throat> and Jesus says, okay, good job. Now go do this, and you will live, right? You've answered correctly. Nice job. He says, okay, Jesus, that's fine. That's good. Um, but here, I'm going to come again. I'm coming again. I see you didn't. That first question didn't take, I'm coming after you again. <clears throat> so he wanted, and scripture tells us specifically that he wanted to justify himself. And so he proceeds to ask a follow up question And who is my neighbor? So Jesus has actually already answered the question, the initial question, right? What must I do to inherit eternal life? But the lawyer won't let up and asks a follow up question. And so Jesus then begins with a more full answer. He sets the scene, right, with beginning his parable. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among robbers, and they stripped him and beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. Now, who was this man that was traveling on the road? Why was he traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho that day? And who were the thieves? Were they Jews? Were they Romans? Some other people group? Does, uh, Jesus doesn't tell us anything about that stuff. He doesn't say anything about the identity of the man. He doesn't say anything about the identity of the thieves. He doesn't say what they stole. I mean, he doesn't say any of that information. It simply says that the man suffers terribly at the hands of some thieves and then is left there for dead. Jesus is very careful, on the other hand, to specify the identity of the next three characters in his story. The first two are full-blooded Jews, sons of Abraham. And by chance, a priest was going down on that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite also, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. The priest, as you all know, served in the temple. And the Levites uh, served particular religious duties for the Israelites also. Uh, 
the other tribes of Israel, if you remember your Old Testament history, the other tribes of Israel were expected to give the tithes to the Levites since the Levites were not permitted to be landowners. Their job was to be devoted to the things of God, and so they weren't to own land, and the other tribes had to give them tithes. Moses and Aaron, in fact, had been Levites themselves. And so you would think that these two men, leaders and religious leaders at that, right? That is to say, they're not just leaders, but they were leaders over the most important things of a person's life. You would think that they would have been the first to show compassion to this dying man on the side of the road. But Jesus says no. These men scrupulously avoided the suffering man. And then we come to the hero of the story, right? The Samaritan. But a Samaritan who was on a journey came upon him, and when he saw him, he felt compassion and came to him and bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them, and he put him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. On the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, when I return, I will repay you. As with all the other parables Jesus tells, Jesus has our number with this story. The good guy in this story is a man whom the Jews that, he was, that Jesus was speaking to would have hated, right? <clears throat> Jesus is very careful to specify this man's identity, and he's very careful to list all the extravagant effort that that the man went to, that the Samaritan went to, to properly care for the man wounded by the side of the road. He didn't simply bandage up his wounds. He didn't simply bandage up his wounds and take him to the inn. He didn't simply bandage up his wounds, take him to the inn, and leave him there, pay for his stay there. He also told the innkeeper that whatever more you spend on him, I'll come back and pay it. Whatever bill he racks up, I will pay for I'm good for it. I will pay. <clears throat> no, no expense and no amount of effort was spared to see that this man was safe and comfortable. And it's interesting to me that Jesus doesn't even give the wounded man a chance to respond to the Samaritan in the story, right? This, the, the guy who is wounded has nothing to say, isn't doing anything. He's completely nameless. And it's all about the Samaritan caring for a wounded man. All the other stuff is irrelevant, and what Jesus wants us to focus on is the Samaritan. And so Jesus closes the lawyer, with the lawyer with another question. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? Nowhere to run, nowhere to hide, right? There was only one answer to this question. And the answer is, the one who showed mercy toward him. Then Jesus said to him, go and do the same. Now as Tim has said in previous sermons, each of Jesus' parables has a punchline. That is to say, it is supposed to punch you in the face, right? The lawyer was expecting to be patted on the head and justified 
in his religious observances, self-righteous religious observances, and instead, Jesus completely disarms him and turns the whole situation on its head. Now, you know how I made such a big deal at the beginning of this sermon about the question that this lawyer asks. It was a good question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? But what we learn here is that even the lawyer, though he had asked the right question, though he's miles ahead of even us today in asking the right question, even he has been exposed for being disingenuous in this question. A question, the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life, means, if the questioner is sincere, that the questioner knows that I, if I ask that question, I know that, there, that I need something, that I don't have something, namely eternal life, and that I am in desperate need of it. The lawyer in this story asks the follow-up question, and who is my neighbor? Because he doesn't understand his need. He doesn't understand the situation that he's in. He doesn't understand what asking the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life, even means. And so, as Scripture records, he was simply seeking to justify himself. And, brothers and sisters, this is very important for us to keep in mind, to know. Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan to answer the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He is not telling the parable of the Good Samaritan for us to learn how to be good Samaritans. Let me repeat that. Jesus is not telling the, good, the parable of the Good Samaritan to teach you what it means to be a Good Samaritan. In fact, I want to disabuse you of the notion entirely. You are not the Good Samaritan. There is no way that you could possibly have been the Good Samaritan. That is Jesus' entire Point. His entire point to this religious lawyer is to teach him that his righteousness is pathetic, is worthless. All of his good deeds are completely and utterly bankrupt. <clears throat> and so this is the irony of the parable of the Good Samaritan, is it not? Because the parable of the Good Samaritan so often is told for that very purpose, to teach us to be Good Samaritans. And yet, nothing could be further from the point that Jesus had in mind than that very thing. Jesus wasn't out to help us figure out how to justify ourselves and how to be more self-righteous. Jesus was out to destroy any last vestige of self-righteousness that we had. Now, I have made this claim, you may not actually believe me yet, that Jesus' point in this story is not to teach us to be a good Samaritan. You might say, well, okay, how is that, how can that possibly be? 
my answer to you is that Jesus is asked this question, what shall I do to inherit eternal life, on numerous other occasions in the New Testament. And we can look at his answer to that, to that question in these various different instances to sort of see what he's actually driving at. So for instance, if uh, you look on the screen or look in your Bible um, at Mark chapter 10, uh, beginning with verse 17, there's recorded for us a conversation that Jesus has with a rich young ruler, right? It says, as he was setting out on a journey, a man ran up to him and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, I have kept all these things from my youth up. Looking at him, Jesus felt the love for him and said to him, one thing you lack, go and sell all you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. But at these words he was saddened and went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. I'm simply going to note that Jesus answers the question first by making an appeal to the law of Moses, just as he had done with the lawyer. He points the man to the law that he already knew. Then, when the man says that he had followed the law from his youth, he adds one more thing, give everything away to the poor and come and follow me. And then the man walks away very very sad. I'll give you another example of Jesus answering this same question. We come to the story of, uh, or rather the instance, shortly after Jesus had fed thousands of people by this miracle of breaking bread and fish. Um, in John chapter 6, uh, he's talking to the crowds, beginning with verse 27, he's talking to the crowds who have showed up to hear him preach and, I'll point out, to get fed, right? And he says to them, Do not work for the food which perishes, but work for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him the Father, God, has set his seal. Therefore they said to him, What shall we do so that we may work the works of God? Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, What then do you do for a sign, so that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread out of heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, but it is my father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. In each instance, Jesus is asked what, mu what must be done to inherit eternal life. He points to Moses and the law, and then the people immediately seek to justify themselves in their unbelief and their unrepentance. And Jesus then points them back to himself. He aims right at their idols as he does it. In the case of the lawyer, he aims right at his self-righteous pride and justifications. The lawyer thinks he's religious, but he doesn't know the first thing about loving God. In the case of the rich young ruler, he aims right at that young man's love of worldly wealth and comforts. 
And in the case of the crowd of Jews, he aims right at their lineage and traditions. You know, Moses, the law, this is, this is their history. This is what they love, what they hope in. And they say to him, they say to Jesus, Moses, our man Moses, gave us bread from heaven to eat. What are you going to do, Jesus? And he says to them, I will give you my flesh to eat and my blood to drink. You couldn't imagine something more offensive to that crowd than to say those things that Jesus said. I didn't read it in this passage. I didn't read the part specifically about his flesh and his blood, but it comes later in the chapter in John 6. He says to them, I will give you my flesh to eat and my blood to drink. And at that time, many people walked away and left. Scripture records for us that many people left Jesus at that point. But remember, in each of these instances, Jesus is answering the same basic question each time. And the riddles he tells all contain the same answer. You, what, do you, what must I do to, to inherit eternal life? You must believe in the one he has sent. As I say, there is a punchline in each story, and the punchline is calculated and leveled right at us. The very thing that we put our hope in and our pride in is the very thing that Jesus wants to kill. We think that God will honor us because of our good works. We think that God will be pleased because of the way that we give alms to the poor. We think that the Good Samaritan, the story of the Good Samaritan is all about us. We think that we need to go out and save the world. But let me say it again. You are not the Good Samaritan. Jesus is the Good Samaritan who finds you in a ditch. Dead. Left for dead on the side of the road. So then, what is the parable of the Good Samaritan about? Jesus has given the answer already. Right? The obvious way to hide something is make it, put it right out, out there in the open. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. And if that doesn't bankrupt you, doesn't make you feel completely bankrupt in your heart, then you do not know yourself. You don't even begin to know yourself if that doesn't completely bankrupt you. We have to know that for God to give us this command is to expose our selfish, small, petty, wicked, evil hearts. And the response to the weight of God's law coming down and crushing every last false pretense that we have is the same every single time. It's Jesus' call to repent and believe in the one whom God has sent. It's only when we've come to that point, to the point of repentance and belief in Jesus Christ, that we can hear the words bear fruit in keeping with repentance. If the story of the Good Samaritan is about compassion, and it is, it is, then the point is that true compassion will come 
after, only after, we realize our immeasurable, immense debt toward God. So allow me to say something about compassion before we end. We are, in this church, after all you're here, most of you are Christians, most of you attend this church on a regular basis, we are a religious people, and religious people have the most sophisticated ways imaginable to avoid showing compassion and love. We're the best in the business at avoiding showing compassion to those people who need compassion. It's evil. We are just like the lawyer in the story, and we're always eager to justify ourselves with our religious observances. We have many reasons. I have many reasons to avoid being compassionate, right? I'm busy. I'm in a hurry. I've got something to do. My family is waiting for me. Um, That person looks like they need someone to talk to, but I have errands I need to go run. If I get involved in helping them, perhaps things will get messy and complicated, and I just can't deal with that right now. Maybe we think, what good can I do? And we're, we're faithless and hopeless. What good can I do? Maybe we think about the topic of abortion, how terrible, what an awful price it is for the little babies to pay for our selfishness. And we think, what can I do to stop such terrible bloodshed? I don't know of anything. It's just too overwhelming. Or perhaps we think, well, that man on the side of the road, he's going to die anyway. You know, he's a lost cause. You know, it'd just be too much work. You know, if you think about each of the people, each of the men who saw the the wounded man on the side of the road, if you don't identify with those men passing the, the wounded man on the road, then you don't begin to enter the parable that Jesus tells. For instance, have you ever thought about what it would take to pick up and carry a dead a man? Just dead weight, right? That's hard. It's not easy to just pick up and carry somebody. So it's very easy to imagine that, you know, if you're walking by, you're the only one there. It's like, well, what am I going to do? Pick him up and carry him? I can't do that. And so... You know, you maybe feel bad and you just sort of go on. There's many, many ways that we justify our indifference and our hardness of heart. But it is the Samaritan who showed us the extent, the breadth, the depth of the compassion that God calls us to do or to have. We can also avoid showing compassion in at least two other ways, right? We can try to define somebody as not our neighbor, uh, the way that the lawyer was trying to do, or something much more common today, uh, we could decide that we just love all men, or maybe we love all children except our own, right? We love all men except maybe the person sitting next to us or our next door neighbor, Um, We love the idea of husbands and wives, except we just really don't like our husband. You know? But, and so we're, we're in love with these abstractions, these generalizations, but we're not 
willing to actually love the physical flesh and blood people next to us. In the parable, in the interchange between the lawyer and Jesus, Jesus clearly doesn't like the question, who is my neighbor? And so he teaches us to ask a different question. What kind of a neighbor am I? Are, are you the kind of neighbor who will give... Oh, hold on just a second. Are you the kind of neighbor who will give someone the law like Jesus did in order to have their self-assurances torn down? Jesus wants us, he's grinding our face into the reality that we can never measure up to this good Samaritan, right? And I want us to remember not just for ourselves, but as you talk to people in your work at uh, IU, if that's where you frequent, that Jesus was compassionate enough to bring the law to these people and to show, to show them their need, their immense, vast need before God. He was kind and compassionate enough to tear down their self-justifications and their uh, self-protection and self-assurances. But don't miss the point. God does call us to be compassionate. But one day, you will stand before a holy God and give account of your life, and your compassionate deeds will not satisfy the righteousness that's required of you by a holy God. You yourself are not the Good Samaritan. And if you think today that you are the Good Samaritan, and you're going to be intent on being the Good Samaritan going from this place, you're going to leave very sad, just like the rich young ruler. It's only those who are prepared to plead nothing but the blood of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins who will go away satisfied. Because they will have received mercy from God. And it's only then that we will be able to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. It's only then that you'll begin to show godly compassion to a needy world. And the fruit that is a result of that will be the work of God and not your work. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you are so very tender to us and compassionate. You have knelt down to us and cared for us. Even, your your word says, even when we were your enemies, you have shown your love to us by sending your Son, Jesus Christ, to die and to pay the penalty for our sin. Father, forgive us for our proud self-justification and trying to climb our way to heaven through our own efforts. Help us instead, Father, to trust you and the work of your Son, Jesus Christ. And give us faith, we pray, Father, that we may indeed bear Uh, do good deeds in keeping with repentance and bear good fruit. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.